there was a police recruiter who was uh, taking an exam in his police academy, and they asked him, what would you do if you had to arrest your own mother? And his reply was, get back up. <laughs> I know my mom's watching online maybe later on, but she'll, she'll, get the, she'll think that's funny. Italian family, Italian mom, shoes and wooden spoons, yeah, yeah, all right, so we're in Colossians together, let's turn there, please. We began this series last week, uh, looking at some background, really some historical context, and we got as far as verse 2 of chapter 1, so that's where we'll start. We're going through this book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, expository preaching is our regular diet here at King's Chapel. So what we'll do today is we'll look at verses uh, 3 of chapter 1, verse 3 through 9a. Chapter 3 of Colossians, verse 3 through 9a. So let me read to you from the ESV, God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Colossians 1, verse 3 through 9a. Hear the word of the Lord. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it is also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. 9a. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Let me remind you the book of Colossians written by the Apostle Paul. 61, 60, 61, 62 A.D., from his house arrest in Rome. While in Rome, a man by the name of Epaphras comes from Colossae to see him. And he's telling him about great things that's going on in the church of Colossae. But he also is informing Paul of some difficult situations, some concerning situations that were going on there as well. It is believed that Epaphras came to faith during Paul's third missionary journey several years before. He visited him in Rome. While Paul was in Ephesus, really doing a two-year discipleship program in a rented hall. He then went and either planted a church in Colossae as the church planner, or at least one of the lead pastors of that church. And after Paul hears what's going on, the good things and what's concerning Epaphras, he writes this letter to the church in the city or the town of Colossae in Asia Minor. Recalling the series, the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ because of the rich and beautiful picture of Christ. It is brilliantly Christological, meaning Christ-centered on the person and work of Jesus, Christological. Uh, it, it, is, it is, you know, Paul goes to this great lengths to show us the supremacy of Christ, how Jesus Christ reigns in complete sovereign authority over all the world. Every aspect of creation, all the cosmos, is under the supreme control and reigning rule of Jesus. He is supreme. He's also sufficient, meaning that Jesus Christ and the gospel is all satisfying. 
He completely sustains and satisfies our souls. All that we need for salvation, for human flourishing, is found in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel. The sufficiency of Christ in the gospel that will sustain us in difficult times, hard situations, difficult trials, tough and uncertain times that we live in. When, when Epaphras came to see Paul, he told him of this false teaching that was going on in the church, teaching that you needed something more, something more than Jesus Christ to know God, something more than Jesus to defeat the power of evil and sin, something more than Jesus added to Jesus for salvation, for, for spirituality. Christ was not supreme and sufficient. He was not enough. So Paul writes this letter to affirm the sufficiency and the uh, excuse me, supremacy and sufficiency of Christ to put down some of that false teaching, to correct the false teaching, to, to teach the truth. And he begins the letter we saw last week, not really by defending the truth right away, but Paul starts his letter by defending his apostolic authority to teach the truth. That's where he begins. Verse 1 makes it clear that he's an apostle, meaning that he was sent by Jesus Christ himself and sent with the authority of Christ himself to speak, to teach, to write in Christ's stead. And this providential decision came by the will of God the Father, verse 1. So his apostolic authority, his appointment, did not come by his own will or any will of any man, his own decision-making, but God himself. And after Paul introduced himself as what's common, Paul identifies the recipients. Look what he says. He calls them saints. We talked about this last week. It means separated ones, faithful brothers that are in Christ Jesus in, at Colossae. So in other words, he's saying God set them apart. That's what saints mean. They've been set apart, called out of darkness, into what? Transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, verse 13. So he's called out of darkness, brought into a family, and in union with Christ. That, that you know, verse uh, uh, 2 is packed with, with real meaning. And then he pronounces blessing, grace to you. Grace to you. As you read this letter, have God's grace, unmerited, unearned, undeserved love, and peace, the shalom, psychological, spiritual, emotional peace, well-being that comes from the gospel. And now it's time, verse 3, to get into the letter. The first section begins in verse 3 and ends really in verse 14. We'll take it in two parts. Um, The first one goes, as I said, chapter 3, verse 9a. It's Paul's thankfulness regarding the church. Verse 3, we thank God as we pray for you. We thank our God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we pray. Verse 9a, if you look down, uh, it says it again. And from this day, since we've heard this, we have not ceased to pray for you. The rest of verse 9 really is the prayer. Look what it says. Asking, in other words, this is our prayer now. We have thanksgiving. Everything between 3 and 9a is, is what Paul is thankful for. And then 9a begins what the prayer is. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and spiritual understanding. We'll, we'll unpack that next week. So that's where we're at. Thankfulness today, prayer next week. So under three headings, we'll, we'll talk about why Paul is so thankful. First, we'll see the confirmation of the gospel. Paul is thankful because they have their, that, that there is faith, there is love, and there is hope in the gospel. Then the expansion of the gospel. Paul is thankful that this gospel that they've received is expanding. It's, it's increasing. It's bearing fruit. And finally, we see the reception where Paul speaks about Epaphras. The gospel they learned from this man who brought the gospel to Colossae and how it's evidented by, his, by their love for people. So that's where we're at. 
So number one, the confirmation of the gospel. Verses three through five, uh, excuse me, three through five A. Giving thanks, God the Father, Jesus Christ, we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ, your love for the saints, the hope laid up for you in heaven. And what you notice here, Paul begins that he's being that he's very thankful for this little church as he prays, as he remembers them and talks to Jesus on their behalf. He thanks God for what God is doing, what God is doing in the people, what God is doing through the church in Colossae. It's interesting that Paul doesn't open up with criticism. He doesn't, he doesn't open up with getting to the truth right away. He begins with thankfulness. Just read the book of Galatians and you'll see something very opposite. There was another gospel being preached and it was sending people to hell. And Paul said, you know what? I got really nothing to commend you. Stop. Jumps right into it. But here, I guess unless you have something really pressing you have to say, Paul begins with a word of encouragement. A word of thanksgiving. Just remind us of what kind of perspective we are to have. Are we always looking to give thanks to God in prayer? Are we always looking to give thanks to God for what God is doing here at King's Chapel, what God is doing here among us, in our community groups, in our gathering, with our friends, with our families? Are we looking to give thanks for all that God is doing? What a great idea, right? Having a thankful heart. Paul has a thankful heart. We see that in verse 3. We see it in verse 2. 12, giving thanks to the Father who qualifies you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We see that in chapter 2, verse 7, abounding in thanksgiving. We see that in chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do, word or deed, everything in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus. See that in chapter 4, verse 2, continuing steadfast in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. This book is a book of thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Rejoice always, Paul says. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. So it appears to me, I hope it appears to you, that prayerfulness and a mindset of thankfulness go hand in hand. Prayerfulness and a mindset of thankfulness go hand in hand. And I think the reason is, as we pray, we, 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 we need to be contemplating the grace of God, the work of God, the experience of God's grace, not only in our lives, but in the lives of others. And that will bring thankfulness. It doesn't mean that we don't go to God with our brokenness hardships, deep hurts, right? I mean, we do that. We, we, we Just read the Psalms. Uh, Darlene's teaching on the Psalms for the ladies on Mondays and Tuesdays. There's a lot of brokenness. But what, what it does when we pray, it gives us the opportunity not only to express how we feel, but an opportunity for us to realign our hearts and thoughts upon the grace of God, the truth of God, all that God has done and continues to do, and the promises he will keep. Spiritual deprivation comes when believers do not prayerfully contemplate God's grace. It results in an unthankful perception. And you know, interesting about 1 Thessalonians, before we move on, it says, be thankful in all circumstances. It doesn't say be thankful for 
all circumstances. Like, oh, I'm so glad my house burned down to the ground. Like, no, that would be something wrong with you. <laughs> In all things mean I got to look beyond the circumstances to the grace of God. That's the point. Thanksgiving is a powerful means of spiritual maturity and stability. And notice with me in verses 4 and 5, the similar, uh, similar uh, familiar, excuse me, the familiar triad. Look with me. Faith in Christ, love, saints, hope. Faith, hope, and love. Seen that before? 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Thessalonians 1, 3. It's all throughout Scripture. These three great characteristics. And Paul begins here with faith, right? You've got to have faith. This sounds like a song. He's thankful because if they have faith in Christ Jesus. He mentions it first because it is faith that brings relationship. It is faith that receives the gospel. It is faith that we receive grace and mercy. Without faith, there's no relationship. There's no grace. There's, there's no gospel. And Paul's specific about the object of his faith. He says, it's Jesus Christ. We live in a time where people are just really quick to talk about their religious experience or their, their, their spirituality as a means of just trying to be okay, just trying to connect with something and someone. I'll be okay. But the truth is, faith has no intrinsic value in and of itself. It must derive its value from the object of its faith. When someone says, I have faith, the question should be, in what? Faith in faith? Salvation and reconciliation and grace and mercy does not come by believing in belief. All right? Not even a set of doctrine or creed. It comes by resting and relying and trusting in Jesus. That's what was going on in the Colossian church. Tim Keller said, It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. End quote. Biblical faith believes, trusts, understands, and comes to rely upon the historical reality of who God is in Christ Jesus. It trusts Him fully, without reservation. To believe in God is to reject, listen, all other ways of salvation. All other ways of justifying oneself solely upon the person and work of Christ. Next we see how this faith is lived out in love. Look what it says. The love that you have for all the saints. He's talking about the mutual love. A basic Christian virtue. Love for one another. He's saying that there's faith toward Christ. In Christ flows from what? Uh, this love from Christ flows and is embodied in, in, the, in the love for others. It's showing itself that way. It's supernatural. He'll say it in chapter 1, verse 8. We'll get there in a little bit. Your love, is, your love in the Spirit, capital S. It's the Holy Spirit. Christians are not only united solely in the person and work of Jesus, but we are knitted together in love. Love is a work of God's grace. It begins within us, and, it's, and it seeks to express itself as we look to love one another. It's not a selfish thing. It's not about me. It's not my own craving, getting what I want. It's sacrificial love expressing itself and doing and caring and loving other people in the church. 1 John 4 says this. This is, this is a tough, if you, you know, if you really think about this passage. If anyone says, I love God, 
Okay, if you're here, you say, I love God. And hates his brother. He or she is a liar. I didn't say that. Take it up with God. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love whom he has not seen. Can we just, can we just say today that just acknowledge that a heart that's been genuinely given new life in Christ, a heart that has been born anew by the Holy Spirit, will love the family of God in which he was born into. That's what Paul is saying. I know some people are hard to live with. All right, I'm not even going to say it. It's Mother's Day. (laughs) Paul says, be thankful. He's thankful for their faith and their love. And he's not talking about a natural characteristic. He's talking about the work of the Spirit. The ability that the Holy Spirit is working within us. And this quality of, of, uh, of faith and love are evidenced when we love one another, our hearts and soul. Jesus said what? You know, they'll, know, they'll know you. They know you belong to me. You know my disciple. You're a Christ follower by your love for one another. So yeah, I mean, we could say, yes, we need to love our neighbors. The Bible said we love our enemies. We should love our families. We should love our friends. We should love those in our communities. But what he's saying here is that as this letter's being read to King Chapel, the letter being read to Colossae, and sitting with people look around you, that our brothers and sisters in Christ, that you may not even know that well or may not even like that well, Paul and Jesus, for that matter, is saying genuine love is the mark of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you as Christ's followers when you love each other. The brotherhood, the sisterhood, the work of the Spirit. We are saved, right, by faith, and we are saved to love one another. Now, before we move on, let me, let me just state something obvious. We can only love one another if we're living in community, not isolation. In the assembly, while we live life together in community, life, living life together in community not only gives us the opportunity to love one another, but it informs us how to love one another. It's how we learn what the needs are, how we learn how we are to respond to one another in a loving way. It's the best way to show love, not isolation. You can't live this out, showing evidence of genuine salvation when you live by yourself or not part of community. Next, Paul mentions hope. But notice in this passage, hope is the means or the cause of faith and love. See that? Because, verse 4, so there's faith, there's love, verse 4, because of the hope. Now, a lot of times you think, no, no, faith causes hope. I have faith in God, and therefore I'm I'm hoping in God. But Paul uses it and turns it around, that hope enables you to believe, and hope enables you to love. We heard of your faith in Christ. We heard of the love of the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. That's, That's an interesting triad that Paul uses, that triad, faith, hope, and love, and kind of turns it around. In Corinthians, remember, he says, but the greatest of these is love. Here, the greatest of these is hope. And understand, I think, what Paul is saying is you've got to ask the question, um, when, when this church is doing it, but the false teacher is doing it, but if we neglect the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, what happens to our hope? What does that do to our hope? 
If Christ is not supreme and sovereign over the world, our future, your future is on shaky grounds and your hope will be weak and shaky as well. If Christ is not sufficient for your salvation and your wholeness, then your hope will be fleeting and unattainable because you're looking for it in other places. But if Christ is supreme, has supremacy, and is sufficient, What happens to our hope? It's secure. Chapter 1, verse 27, Colossus of this letter. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What mystery, Paul? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. (laughs) But now let's ask, how exactly does hope produce, enable, and cause our faith to grow and to show itself in love. How does hope really do that? Notice first what it says, what, where the hope is. It's in heaven. In other words, the hope, because the hope laid up for you in heaven, the hope has to do with the work of Jesus, the promise of eternal life. The believer's hope, the believer's confidence is in God himself who worked the gospel of salvation and promises us not only his presence now, but eternal life with him. And the truth is, without that kind of hope, there's no real reason for faith or love. Paul believed that the hope offered in Christ in the gospel will move the heart toward assurance, and the result of that will be faith and love. And the basis of faith in Christ and loving others in the world is because this is not all there is. There is something future, the promised future. This is not your best life now. Before faith in God, the Colossians and all of us are without God and without hope in the world, the scripture says. But here comes Epaphras with the gospel and with its wonderful, surprising joy of salvation and hope of heaven. And this joyful hope is a biblical hope. Not the uncertainty of hope that something might happen. Okay? Like Pastor Bill's hopes. The Mets keep winning baseball games. I mean, we don't know that. But the unchanging, objective hope that God loves us, he forgives us, he is for us. He has a purpose for us. He accepts us, not uh, from our failed moral achievements, but Christ's perfect moral achievements. It's that joyful hope that increases our faith, that propels us to love others. How can you love when people have been unloving to you and justice has not been done because God promises he will make everything right in the end? How can you grow in your faith when things don't go your way or when you're hurting? God says in the gospel, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never separate you from the love that he has for you. So family, as we participate in the hope of the gospel, eternal life, that was sealed onto the day of redemption by grace alone, we're bound together to, to love one another. And that will encourage our faith as we grow in it. The gospel, the confirmation of the gospel. Number two, the expansion. Paul's excited, verse 5b. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. It's all about the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in what? Truth. Truth. Its content 
is absolutely dependable. It's truthful. And its gospel is gracious. In other words, it, it, its recipients receive it as undeserved favor. It is the gospel of truth. It is the gospel of grace. Sound familiar? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the full expression of God's grace and truth. All the necessary grace and truth to, to be saved, to, to, to be fruitful, is available in Christ. That's what he's saying. And Paul reminds the Colossae church, listen, he's saying, you've received the truth. You've already heard the truth. Somebody cannot come along and tell you, listen, you've heard some of it. Because remember, that's, that's what's being told. The secret knowledge, we talked about the last week. You know some of it, here's the rest of the truth you missed. Paphras, you already preached the gospel to you guys at Colossae. Don't be fooled. You've already received the gospel of truth. You've already received it by grace alone. Not only you, but it's, it's growing, man. It's, it's all, all in the world. It's all over the world. It's not some secret knowledge that nobody knows. The world knows the gospel. Not just a few people. The whole world knows about the word, the truth, and the gospel of grace. In other words, it's being spread everywhere. A little hyperbole, but it's what Paul's saying, the gospel is open to all. It's growing. It's bearing fruit, not only in Colossae, but it's advancing all over the world. And it's not only, and Paul's going to talk about more of this next week, it's not only an advancement of the gospel as people coming to faith, but it's bearing fruit as the gospel continues to transform lives in Colossae and around the world. And this ongoing transformation, fruit-bearing, look down at verse 10. We'll get to this next week, just a little preview. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now we know that works are not the base of salvation, but they are, uh, but they will give you an opportunity if, if you have a, other than a thief on the cross, if genuine salvation has come, it'll be evidented by your work. Works not the base of your salvation, but works are, if given the opportunity, the evidence, the revealing evidence that one has true faith, love, and hope. He's talking about the demonstration of the gospel. He's talking about the demonstration of the power of the gospel and how the gospel saves sinners and transforms sinners. And, and Paul really, without the marks of, of faith, love, hope, uh, resulting in, in fruitful works, there's no thanksgiving. Paul, there's no, there's no, Paul, is not, Paul would not be thanking God for them. But they have it. This, this increasing faithfulness and fruitfulness is an evident, uh, is a, uh, excuse me, Inevitable sign of the gospel, the reception of the gospel. And it's contrasted, we'll see this when we get to chapter 2, the unfruitful work of darkness and the false teachers. These lives of these believers are exhibiting these qualities as, as they're growing and they're believing, they're trusting, they love people, they have hope for heaven. Paul says, listen, we don't need to add to the gospel we don't need to add to the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. He's alive, and the gospel is growing. It's bearing fruit. It's spreading across racial lines, national geographic barriers throughout the Roman Empire. Nothing's stopping this work of God. It continues to influence and be felt region upon region. 
Both inwardly as the transformation of the gospel and outwardly as people declaring and demonstrating and people are coming to faith. Let, let, me just, let me just say this. We'll talk again more about this next week, about the, the, the transformation of the gospel. Uh, we'll get to evangelism, but transformation of the gospel. Family, w- let, let's prayerfully remember that we should never, ever, ever get tired of hearing the gospel. Our rehearsing of the gospel is how we grow in our appreciation of the grace of God, and it will directly and proportionally show us our need for it, and that will propel us to grow in faith. Tim Keller famously said, the gospel is not just the, is not just the ABC of Christianity, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just entrance into the kingdom, forgiveness of sin, but it's also the way we make all our progress in our sanctification, in our transformation. The gospel is the way we grow. It is the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, the power through every barrier, end quote. We forget the gospel when the gospel no longer drives us, influences influences us, or functions for us as our ongoing acceptance, hope, and confidence in God. We've forgotten the gospel. That means we must remind ourselves every day of our sin and our inability to be cleansed alone and wash ourselves, but remember also every day of God's love and God's mercy and God's, God's cleansing power of forgiveness and acceptance of us in Christ. His righteousness, not ours. When God's grace becomes unnecessary for our daily practical living, we've forgotten the gospel. And the gospel needs to be recovered and retained for care of our souls. It must be a time we're running to Jesus, uh, returning to Jesus for forgiveness, for cleansing, for empowerment, and for purpose. It must be the answer to all our doubts and fears. Do my sins condemn me? Jesus covers them, washed them, died for them, rose for them. Do my works fall short? Of his glory, Jesus' righteousness is imputed to me and counted to me by faith. Is the world and the enemy and the devil and my own flesh trying to take me down? Yes, but God said he will keep me. He will love me. He will never leave me. Can I have victory? Can I carry the cross? Can I follow Jesus? Yes, because the Bible says that the gospel teaches us, I should say, that God is working in you. Willing and working for his own good pleasure. That's what it means to preach the gospel. We'll talk much more about that next week. But let me, let me transition to say this. If we are preaching the gospel, we are pressing in the gospel into our hearts, into our hearts. If our joy and our hope is in the gospel, it will drive us to tell others of this great truth, this wonderful grace of the gospel. And that will result with what? Fruitfulness. Gospel increase. Matthew 28, a famous passage, we love to quote it. Jesus said what? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. That's the participle, therefore go. The command, make disciples. Therefore, as you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Great verse, chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. But, in verse 16, right before that verse, what we find is the disciples had gathered together and went to Galilee and did what Jesus told them to do, and that's to meet there. And then in verse 17, right before Jesus gives his command, it says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. 
Worship is a response to the glory of God. Worship is a response to the self-revelation of God through the scripture, by the Holy Spirit, but most importantly and ultimately in the glory of the beloved son in the gospel. And that prompts us to worship. Now here's my takeaway. As we marvel, relish, and abide in the breathtaking grace and mercy toward us in the gospel, how could we not tell others of this great salvation? Jesus said in John 15, and I was thinking about fruit increasing gospel um, evangelism, people coming to faith, and, and what brought to mind was John 15, 4 through 5. We went through this uh, gospel account years ago. Um, and Jesus talked about abiding and bearing fruit. You know the verse. And if you apply this, and I think you can, because the scripture tells us we can in John 15, if you apply this to evangelism, to witnessing, to sharing the gospel, it all makes sense. This is what Jesus said. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you could do nothing. And when you read the rest of John 15, you'll know that what he's talking about ultimately is for the Father's glory. Chapter 15, verse 8. Obedience to the commands, that's fruit of, the, fruit of abiding in Christ, obeying his commands. Experiencing joy, verse 11 of chapter 15. Loving one another, all this is fruit. Jesus is talking about bearing fruit. But then he gets to verse 16 and 27, and the fruit is the proclamation of the gospel, the witnessing of Christ to the world, the demonstrating, declaring of the gospel is bearing fruit. You see, many times we talk about evangelism, I know we do that in our LCN group, and you can talk about it in community groups. One of the reasons, or one of the things that really keep us from evangelizing, probably one of the, one of the main reasons is fear. People talk about fear, rejection, or whatever the fear may be. And that's, that's true. I'm sure it is. It's true. But, but could it be that we are not sharing our faith often enough is because we're not regularly and consistently and thoughtfully growing, abiding in the gospel of grace, rehearsing the gospel, relishing in the gospel. Maybe that's part of the reason. I think the more we rehearse and, and, and drink in and, and, and rely upon the gospel, the more fruit we'll bear. More times we'll share our faith. We'll be overwhelmed by the love and the grace and the mercy of God. And that will pour on out to other people. You see, the Colossians heard the gospel. The Colossians received the gospel. It's bearing fruit. That's what we need to do. That, can we say that? And I think in many ways we can, but we need to be reminded, I believe, of the expansion and power of the gospel as we live together in community, as we live our life in our jobs, wherever we are. Remember, our, our, our mission statement is simple. We exist to glorify God by living on mission with him. We exist to glorify God by living on mission with him in making disciples through gospel-centered worship, transformation, and community. The expansion of the gospel. And finally, in verse 7, just as you learned it, learned what? The gospel. From Epaphras, our fellow, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. I think the proper way to read that is he's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. Some of your translations have ours and yours. ESV is your, but I think the right one is our behalf. He's our brother, and he's on our behalf, verse 7, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The Apostle Paul said, look, I'm going to introduce 
who's with me, who you already know, Epaphras, the man who brought the, uh, the gospel to you. Remember, Paul has never met these people. He knows Epaphras, but he doesn't know the church. And what's interesting is Paul connects his apostolic authority to the one who brought them the gospel with the term, our beloved, our loved fellow servant. Servant is the word doulos, slave. Uh, a slave, a position, a status of, of great humility and, and, a, and the, an absolute desire to, to follow Christ, to do the will of Christ. I'm a slave of Christ. And even though he has apostolic authorities, he's, he's, he's a minister of Christ on our behalf, he recognizes all those who are slaves to Christ. He doesn't treat Epaphras like an inferior uh, subject, but as a partner, as they serve Christ together. I think, I think what Paul is doing, he's giving credibility. He's giving uh, uh, a credibility to the leadership and to the, to the efforts of Epaphras that we're, we're together for the gospel. In other words, Christ, he says, is their master. It's not like Epaphras got two masters, Paul and Jesus. No, just like in verse 1, by the will of God the Father, Epaphras is following, as a slave, the will of God the Father. What is good for Christ? And then notice what he says. Epaphras is also a faithful minister. That word faithful is diakonos, and is where we get our word deacon. We learn in chapter 4 that he is earnestly laboring and working and serving the church. Chapter 4, verse 12, in his prayers. Epaphras is praying that they might stand complete and fully assured in the will of God. Paul is assuring the Colossians that the apostolic gospel that they heard, known in truth, they learned it from Epaphras, I'm sure they're thankful that Epaphras brought them the gospel. The gospel can only bear fruit successfully when people proclaim it and receive it. Not only does Epaphras get a wonderful description of a a fellow, loved, servant, slave, a minister, but look what he says in verse 8. He brings encouraging news. And he made known to us your love in the Spirit. Literally, love inspired by the means or the work of the Spirit. Right, It's the first and only reference in all of Colossae explicitly speaking about the Holy Spirit. Probably because this is a Christological problem and not a a spiritual or or Holy Spirit problem. But here Paul is talking to them about the, uh, excuse me, Paul hears about this wonderful character of the church. They love one another. They love Paul, even though they never met him. And they're loving others. Love, the mark of a believer. Fruit of the Spirit. Divine love is essential and the foundational mark of Christ and the believer, right? The Bible tells us to God is love, 1 John, God is love. And therefore, if he dwells within us, then God's love will dwell within us and through us. That's important, right? So listen, let me say this to you. If God is love and God is love, that's what the Bible says, God is love. If it originates with God, love originates with God, then love must be defined by God. Right? God's love not only originates with God, but is defined by God. Unfortunately, we live in a culture where love is God. Not God is love. And let me tell you, as we live out our faith and love others, we are King's Chapel, God's people, we're going to be confronted with how we are loving others. What does that look like? As we love others with divine love, it may not be accepted as love. 
We know the gospel teaches us to love others, but God's love is a discerning love. Okay, I have a passage up here. We went through Philippians uh, way back when, but let me just read this passage to you. And I think this is important to, to, to mention. Philippians 1, and it is my prayer, Paul says to the church of Philippi, that your love may what? Abound more and more. Let it keep growing. Let the fruit continue with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Make no mistake, divine agape love is sacrificial love. It is a love that God alone can produce in us. A love that is not stagnant, a love that continues to grow. It's a love that's looking for nothing in return, but is willing to love for Christ's sake. Of course, the model is Christ himself, who gave himself in love for the sins of the world. Love is foundational, a distinctive mark. But, like a river in flood seasons, love's capacity needs to be brought within guiding limitations, or... It can damage, not do good. It can cause harm rather than bring blessing. Love is to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Knowledge is the, is the Greek word epinosis. The, gnosis is knowledge, you know that. Uh, epi is this preposition I, intensifying that word. It's usually gnosis usually is about experiential knowledge. But here with that epinosis, Paul uses it 15 times in the New Testament, so we know what he means by it. And every time it's used, he's speaking about the will of God, the word of God, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Christ. Look in Colossians in verse 9, it's the same word. The knowledge of his will, verse 9, epinosis. Verse 10, pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge, epinosis, of God. Growing in real love is done by growing in God's word, being rooted in God's word. That's the knowledge he's talking about. And discernment has to do with knowing what to do in every circumstance. So divine love, therefore, is expressed in ways that, are, that show both the knowledge of God's will through God's word and how to make these moral decisions based on the word and the will of God during everyday life. And here's the rub, family. In our existential postmodern culture, we have sentimentalized love. But Paul is stressing that we need moral insight from Scripture and practical application from Scripture if we're going to love as God loves, especially in situations we find ourselves in today that we never thought we would. That's the kind of love, not sentimental love that is defined by the world, but a, a, but a discerning love defined by God's Word. And we're facing issues today that we have to navigate through while standing on the word and standing not only on the word, but trying to love others as we are guided through the scripture as our final authority. It's the ability to know the right actions, the right decisions that may seem uncaring to others. A decision to to confront an alcoholic person, to, to place limits and serve consequences on a teenager, or to love a child living in sexual sin. And the list goes on and on and on. Very aware. This kind of love is, verse 10, that you may approve what is excellent. Pure blameless. Excellent. Test something, uh, to test something for the purpose of approving it. The ability to know that I'm loving them, loving the person, loving the people that God has placed in my life, knowing that the, the will and the purpose and the discernment is from God. That it's a love that God approves. 
The love of Christ is then controlled, listen, listen, by the knowledge of the word, enabling the Christian to completely discern his will and lead to the place of excellence, knowing what is worthwhile, what really matters. Family, we are to make sure that our love each and every day and every year continues to grow, abound more and more. But let it be so according to the will and the word of the Lord. It makes discernment, it takes discernment, it, it takes real struggles, it takes time of prayer and community. How do I do that? But if divine love is the motivation, if you're motivated by the love of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit, God will reveal to you through his word, through his community, how to love all people. So that from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So as the band comes up, family, let me ask you this. With someone leaving the community of King's Chapel, I say this to me, lead pastor, to the other pastors, starting at the top. Would someone leave our community of faith and say, man, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. We heard that you love one another. We know that you base all your hope on God. We heard how the gospel is increasing. People are coming to Christ through the gospel message, growing and maturing in the gospel of grace. And we know that you love others. You don't use God's word as a blunt instrument to show how right you are, but to genuinely love others. Let us say together that Christ is enough. (laughs) Let us say that we trust in Christ alone and his love flows through us to each other and to the world. And with a thankful heart, let us worship God. And allow allow that to propel us into mission, declaring and demonstrating the gospel. Father, thank you for the gospel thank you for the witness of the gospel and i know many of us in this room uh, could think of the person or the persons that spent their time and spent their energy and their resources to continually teach us about jesus until we came to faith and father we pray that we would be people of the gospel our hope would be in you. Our faith would be in you. We would learn and, 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 and see what it looks like to love others with discernment. But yet, Lord, not stop. Just continue to love others, pointing them to the person and the work of Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that our hearts would be hearts filled with thanksgiving for who you are and all that you have done. And overflowing out of our hearts of love and thanksgiving, Lord, we will demonstrate the gospel with good deeds and love. And we will declare it with the truth of who Jesus is and all his grace and mercy. So Lord, now as we continue to worship you in singing and responding, we pray you get all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.